Welcome to the June Pensions Podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Pensions Law Team. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com or by typing Pensions Hub into Google. I'm Stephen Richards, a partner in the pensions team, and I have with me one of our associates, Roshni Thakra. Today, the topics we're going to look at include the latest developments in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the recent case law that the pensions ombudsman and first tier tribunals have been hearing. Firstly, however, we thought it would be useful to run through the latest developments in relation to the pensions regulator's new criminal investigatory powers. So, Roshni, over to you. Thank you, Steve. So these draft pension regulators' new criminal investigatory powers were laid before Parliament on the 21st of April 2020. They amend the Investigatory Powers Act 2016 in order to grant communications data powers to relevant public authorities, including TPR. TPR would need to demonstrate a necessary and proportionate requirement to use the powers to assist with investigations. The draft regulations grant data gathering powers to TPR to prevent or detect serious crime. TPR will have the power to request authorization to obtain communications data, which includes the who, where, when, how and with whom of a communication, but not what was said or written. In non-urgent cases, authorization can be sought from the Investigatory Powers Commissioner. The IPC will grant authorisation where it is necessary for TPR to obtain communications data for the applicable crime purpose, that is to say that the where there's communications data that is wholly or partly events data and has the purpose of preventing or detecting serious crime, or in any other case, has the purpose of preventing or detecting crime or of preventing disorder. In urgent cases, the designated senior officer within TPR can grant authorisation when satisfied that the request is necessary, urgent and proportionate for the applicable crime purpose. The designated senior officer within TPR is to be the head of department in an enforcement or intelligence role. Once authorisation has been granted, TPR will be able to obtain the communications data itself from any person or telecommunication system. They can ask any person it believes to be in possession of or able to obtain data to obtain and disclose that data and require a telecommunications operator who it believes to be in possession of or able to obtain data to obtain and disclose that data. It is hoped that TPR will clarify when and how it will use the data gathering powers contemplated by the draft regulations it seems highly likely that these powers will be used in the fight against pension scams. Thanks, Roshni. So, moving on to COVID-19, as we must during these times, the regulator has made various tweaks to its growing body of COVID-19 guidance, and it's worth having a quick look through that. So, first, towards the end of May, the regulator stated it will not take enforcement action against DB scheme trustees who have been unable to meet various statutory transfer deadlines due to COVID-19 related issues, such as difficulties with administration, for example. Regulator states that this easement only covers DB schemes and will cease to apply at the end of June. The statement also emphasises that DB schemes that can process transfer requests should still do so. And for all transfers, due diligence is still key to minimising the risk posed by scams. Secondly, the regulator has updated its COVID-19 guidance on DC scheme management and investment. 
A new section has been added to this guidance about the requirements that may apply where DC scheme trustees redirect some contributions to different investment funds, where members' self-selected funds become gated, which means closed to new contributions. The regulator notes that unless certain specific conditions are met, uh, such redirection activity would likely result in a new default fund being created and give rise to a number of compliance requirements such as the charge cap and a statement of investment principles, showing some of the complexities here about changes to existing regulation and guidance. Um, finally, the regulator's automatic enrolment COVID-19 guidance was modified to make it clearer that employers' automatic enrolment duties carry on as normal. In particular, the regulator points out that auto-enrolment assessments will need to take any furloughing into account, which may affect workers' eligibility for auto-enrolment. If a furloughed worker is not eligible for auto-enrolment, they may still have a right to opt in to an auto-enrolment scheme. Anyone who becomes eligible for auto-enrolment whilst on furlough, for example, as a result of reaching age of 22, must still be enrolled automatically. And it will still be necessary for employers to automatically re-enrol workers who have opted out of an auto-enrolment scheme periodically. Thanks, Steve. Now for some pension ombudsman cases. The first one is Mrs Y and deals with the recovery of overpayments following a widow's cohabitation. So here, Mr Y was a member of the teacher's pension scheme until his retirement in 1986. He died in January 2011 and his widow, Mrs Y, began receiving a widow's pension in April 2011. TPS rules provided that if a member had been in pensionable employment on or after the 1st of January 2007 and therefore were a 2007 member, then the surviving adult's pension would be paid for life. However, where that was not the case, the pension would cease to be payable if the recipient married, formed a civil partnership or started living with another person. Annual letters to individuals were provided along with reminders reiterating this position. In June 2016, the Teachers' Pension Scheme asked Mrs White to complete a dependence declaration form in order to assess her continued entitlement to a pension. Mrs White completed her form and indicated that she had been cohabitating from 2014. Consequently, TPS sought to recover an overpayment of £4,633.85, but offered a period of 22 months over which this could be repaid. Mrs Y was unsuccessful in her overpayment appeals to TPS, the Department of Education and also the Pensions Ombudsman. She unsuccessfully argued that, although she was cohabitating, she did not and did not expect to receive any financial help from the person with whom she had been living. She also argued, albeit unsuccessfully, that the TPS rules discriminated against her since widows of 2007 members received a pension for life. Furthermore, her claim for direct discrimination failed as a complaint under the Equality Act 2010, as Mrs Y was unable to demonstrate that she had been treated less favourably because of a protected characteristic such as age, marriage or sex. The difference in treatment was because her husband had not been in a pensionable service after the 1st of January 2007. In addition, any suggestion of indirect discrimination could be justified if it was a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. 
and this extended to the additional cost burden on TPS. And as such, the decision not to make the change retrospectively was deemed proportionate. Finally, Mrs Y could not establish a defence of change of position as she had received sufficient information from TPS about the fact that her pension would cease if she continued cohabitating. Got another case here. This time it's from the first tier tribunal, which is the tax chamber. Uh, and this is a fascinating one. Its uh, name is Ketley and Revenue and Customs Commissioners. And this found that a taxpayer had unreasonably delayed in applying for enhanced protection. And this resulted in a potential tax charge of over 1.5 million to the individual. So enhanced protection is a form of transitional protection made available when the tax regime changed back in April 2006. Uh, and the idea was to protect members' pension benefits above the lifetime allowance, which uh, was introduced at that time. Um, it was available to taxpayers who submitted a form to HMRC before the 5th of April 2009, and HMRC has discretion to accept late applications where there's a reasonable excuse. So the appellant in this case, Mr Ketley, had built up a pension fund of around £5.2 million by the 6th of April 2006. Mr Ketley was well aware of the changes to the lifetime allowance and the possibility of enhanced protection and instructed his financial advisor to apply for the protection. In October 2015, after a change of financial advisor, it became apparent that HMRC had not received Mr Ketley's application form. Uh, and Mr Ketley did not have a certificate from HMRC confirming his protection was in place. So Mr Ketley took steps to investigate whether he could bring a professional negligence claim, but he didn't take steps to see whether he could rectify the position with HMRC for another 10 months and, until August 2016. The tribunal confirmed it was reasonable for Mr Ketley to have relied on his financial advisor to organise and submit the application, even though Mr Ketley was experienced businessman and financially literate. So Mr Ketley therefore had a reasonable excuse for the delay in submitting his application. Um, however, the tribunal found that the reasonable excuse ended in October 2015 when he discovered that he had not made the application to HMRC as originally thought. This 10-month delay was an end to the reasonable excuse. There was no new application submitted in time. And as a result, HMRC and then the tribunal determined that Mr Ketley did not have a reasonable excuse and was liable for tax. So I think this is a, a very important issue for members in particular when it comes to any kinds of protection with HMRC to act promptly and act quickly if any kind of mistake is found, um, particularly if you've got a pension pot of over £5 million. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. So as we also know well, uh, things are never quite so straightforward with RPI rules. And whilst the DWP consultation on reform of the retail price index remains open, there have been two recent High Court cases which consider whether a sponsoring employer was permitted to move away from RPI for the purposes of uprating member benefits. So the first of these is Carr and Thales Pension Trustees Limited. 
Now, this was an appeal against a pension ombudsman's determination, which concluded that the pension scheme could not move away from RPI for the purposes of calculating pension in, pen in payment increases. Now, there were two limbs to this for the relevant definition. So firstly, the percentage increase in the retail prices index over the year ending 30th of September in the calendar year prior to that in which the increase is due to take place, subject to a maximum 5%. And limb two, as specified by an order under section two of schedule three of the Pension Schemes Act. The pension scheme had moved away from the use of RPI in 2016 in reliance of the fact that the second limb of that definition would allow the use of CPI, which was now the measure of inflation stipulated in statute. The High Court, upholding the Ombudsman's decision, held that the first limb of the definition was in fact determinative and RPI was therefore hard-coded into the scheme rules. The second limb was merely a descriptive aid at the time of drafting, the draftsman would not have contemplated a divergence between the two limbs as RPI was used under statute at the time. As there was now a divergence, the first limb of the definition meant that RPI was hard-coded. And the second case to talk about is Ove Arup and trustees of the Arup UK pension scheme. And this case considered whether the following wording would allow a move away from RPI. I'm quoting, if the composition of the index changes or the index is replaced by another similar index, the trustees, after obtaining the actuary's advice, may make such adjustments to any calculations using the index or any replacement index as they consider to be fair and reasonable. Here it was argued by the employer that despite the fact that RPI continued to be published and had not been discontinued, there had been a functional replacement of the RPI due to the changes made to the index and criticism of its appropriateness. This argument was dismissed on the ground that replacement of the index was an act to be done by the producer of the index and not the user of the index in terms of decrying its function. As RPI continued to be published, there was no replacement. Moreover, the adjustments to any calculations using the index did not mean that RPI could be departed from, but instead the trustees could counteract any changes to its composition in a fair and reasonable way when uprating scheme benefits. So both of these cases, Steve, demonstrate that the rules lottery in determining whether RPI can be departed from is still very much alive and kicking, and it does seem that the courts will not readily allow a switch to an alternative index. Well, that's all for this month's podcast. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you found the podcast informative. And don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes or Stitcher or on the Stevenson Harwood website. Please do also visit our Pensions Hub. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.